everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. This is our fourth edition of Women Leaders Shortcuts, the fourth week of examining the world of disorder. We're recording on Saturday the 4th of November, thus exactly four weeks since the horrendous attacks by Hamas on Israel on October 7th that started the awful war in Gaza. All eyes have been focused on these events, but the war in Ukraine has been intense throughout, with bombings of civilians continuing apace. The US is trying to hold down these two wars, the EU is continuing to work its way through irrelevance, and Russia, China and Iran are working their way through this all with apparent glee. For some real insight into these and other issues of disorder, we have with us Oksana Antonenko, a renowned political analyst and advisor on risk and crisis, currently a fellow of the Schumann Center at the European University Institute in Florence, and a veteran of the EBRD and controlled risks. Hi, Oksana, and thanks so much for being here. Hi, Lana, thank you very much for inviting me. Well, since our audience don't know you, can we start as ever with you giving a short introduction to yourself and your career? Well, you know, it's very difficult to come up with a short introduction for my career, partly because it's been a long one, but also because it was um, a quite diverse. So I think one key principle that I oftentimes actually tell when I meet with uh, you know, young women or, uh, you know, people who are looking for their future careers that, uh, you know, I think we are living now in a world where it is very difficult to imagine someone starting their career in one place and, 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 and staying their entire life. But I practiced that uh, at a time when long careers in, in one field or one institution was still very much a norm. So, but I started my career uh, International Institute for Strategic Studies, IISS, uh, one of the leading uh, international security think tanks in London um, after I graduated from Harvard. Uh, and maybe I have to start by saying that I was born in the Soviet Union. I was born and raised in Moscow during still the Soviet times. I went to university there. And then uh, early on in early 1990s, I was uh, involved together with Harvard, Harvard University in advising on the first set of reforms which were implemented in Russia, which unfortunately were very short lived. So I left Russia in 1993. Um, and um, you know, joined IISS in '96. Spent 15 years uh, working on a number of issues related to the East-West relations at a time when we had uh, a lot of hope that, first of all, we can create a functioning uh, European security architecture, that we can overcome the legacy of the Cold War, that we can uh, solve conflicts and actually promote a transition to better governance and democracy. Looking now back at that period, of course, we all think that it's, or I certainly think that it was a time of missed opportunities, but also uh, a time uh, when um, we didn't really um, uh, put a lot of effort that was ne needed. Um, and then after IISS, I moved uh, back to the uh, field of political economy. Uh, I was trained as a political economist and I always wanted to work more in a political economy field. So I spent five years at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development as a senior political counselor advising the president and the board um, and you know the management on political economy issues related to some of the most challenging countries of operations at that time, Russia, Turkey. I also covered Central Europe and part of the South Caucasus. 
And after five years there, I then moved to the private sector, spent five and a half years at Control Risks, which is a, a global uh, political risk consultancy or global risk consultancy. I was covering more political and geopolitical risk, which was a fascinating time advising companies around the world throughout COVID crisis and then, of course, war in Ukraine following Russia's full-scale invasion and seeing all those uh, uh, issues of disorder that you mentioned um, and more of them through the eyes of the boardrooms. And it was really fascinating for me to really understand, in addition to my understanding how it is seen from governments and IFIs, how the business is looking at this. And for them, of course, increasingly, the geopolitical risks are the absolutely key and the most decisive factor that they take into account as they uh, develop and craft their strategy for the future. Well, that is a very impressive career. I completely agree with you that it's very um, reflective of a modern career. I myself followed something similar and it's uh, much better to have, I think um, somebody calls it having lots of eggs in your basket or balancing lots of plates or whatever. But as you say, the idea that nowadays you would start out in one place and end up in that same place 40 years later in a career is not really a very viable idea. But let us go back to disorder as opposed to success. What kind of week has it been? Who's had a good week and who's had a bad week? US, Russia, Israel, Hamas. Very busy week, hasn't it been? Uh, well, I think it's very difficult in this time to think who actually had a good week, uh, because I think we are now in the situation where you know, to go back to a famous phrase, everyone loses. And I think we are now um, walking towards the, um, uh, you know, in a race to the bottom in terms of uh, actual our ability collectively um, as analysts, for example, to analyze and conceptualize where the world is going. I think we understand what the problems are, but there's very few solutions we can see. But also for governments and international actors, going back to your question, I think there's very, very few uh, good ideas and, and capabilities uh, to solve those multiple uh, crises that we have uh, uh, at the same time. Uh, so I think on the United States, uh, uh, you know, front, yes, there is, seems to be an effort now to both, you know, continue supporting Israel, but at the same time reach out to um, the Arab leaders and hopefully finding a way to uh, make uh, that conflict uh, less, uh, uh, you know, De devastating for all sides and of course for global order as well. Uh, I think it's it's good that uh, you know Secretary Blinken has finally also went into the region and met with uh, Arab leaders but so far we actually have not seen very much progress on the ground with a very very small uh, signs that um, you know there could be maybe some diplomacy emerging but uh, the key issues related to the release of um, hostages, of course, the key priority, as well as, of course, the addressing the humanitarian problems in, in, in Gaza. Both of those issues have not yet been tackled effectively this week. I think for the European Union, I think the situation is getting somewhat better. I think initially, uh, European Union very, did not manage to speak with one voice on the um, uh, Israel-Hamas conflict. And, and I think that uh, undermined, I think, the uh, you know, what European Union to a large extent achieved and demonstrated uh, on Ukraine war, that uh, they were united and they were able to breach their differences and remain united here. They were very much disunited. But I think over the last week, we have seen, I think, more of a convergence 
Um, but maybe convergence around that kind of position, which is not a very activist one in terms of what role can actually European Union play, either in diplomacy or in fact on the ground or in humanitarian field. If we look at the situation in Russia, you know, perhaps, you know, President Putin is trying to, uh, as usual, I mean, he's a master in that sense of geopolitical opportunism, if we can call it as such, of playing well, you know, strong with a very weak uh, hand, you know, in cards, as we say. So, so Russia's ability to really uh, have a say in this conflict was very limited, but, you know, it was able to exploit relationships in the, in the region as well as, of course, uh, its uh, capacity, I think, to uh, ferment uh, divisions and, and instability within the West itself to be able to distract, uh, you know, attention from, from Ukraine and, and, and position himself. But as always, you know, his position, you know, even though it perhaps looked like it was strengthening its, uh, its, its uh, uh, role in the Middle East, you know, to some extent by playing that sort of card, you know, it backfired because we have actually seen a substantial, you know, return to the anti-Semitism uh, in within Russia itself, and and this is extremely dangerous for Russia, which is a country where many, you know, Jewish people as well as, of course, you know, Muslim populations as well live side by side. So they, by fermenting this anti-Semitism somewhere else, they actually through the boomerang are seeing the crisis inside Russia itself. So no one really is having a very good week, unfortunately. That does seem to be the case. If we look just slightly more closely, we can see that um, in Ukraine, they had a particularly bad week, I think it's fair to say. Well, I wouldn't say it was a particularly bad week. I think, you know, what we are seeing in Ukraine at the moment is the weather turns and we are entering in this period when at least for a few weeks or possibly a few months, you know, the, the active, you know, fighting will be extremely difficult. I think it is time to take stock. And I think in Ukraine, we are seeing now more realistic voices emerging. And in that sense, the interview that uh, General Zaluzhny, the commander of the Ukrainian forces, gave to Economist and several other statements that came out of Kiev um, saying that, um, you know, we need to be much more realistic and much more deliberate in how we approach the next phase of this conflict, I think, in my view, is a very positive development. Because, you know, a few months ago, we've been in a situation where a lot of voices were extremely unrealistic around the expectations from this counteroffensive. Um, and uh, I think Ukrainian leadership went along with it, of encouraging that, partly because the perception at that time was that if only we create this impression that Ukraine could very quickly turn it all around and regain back its territories, however unrealistic it was for experts within Ukraine itself, and I think leaders as well, you know, that's how we can get the West still supporting Ukraine. Uh, and of course, that is backfiring because, you know, now we are at the end of this fighting season and we're seeing that the territorial gains are uh, much smaller than was advertised at the beginning of this counteroffensive. And therefore, you know, the questions are being asked. But by transitioning now to a much more grounded and realistic strategy in which Ukrainian leadership is saying, listen, it will not be a walk in the woods. It's going to be a long war, and we need you, Europeans and Americans, to support us for the long term. And we will have a more realistic strategy of how we want to come out of this conflict with our interests uh, uh, prevailing. And I think that is actually winning a lot more 
um, respect and support from Ukra for Ukraine in the West in a more realistic way, even if, yes, there is, of course, much more interest of having, you know, quick change, but we know that this quick change is not possible. No, absolutely, it's not possible. Does Russia gain from having a long war or does it lose? Well, I th you know, clearly President Putin thinks that he is going to gain from having a long war. And, and the reason why he thinks so is because he consistently, and that's not only um, you know dating back to the beginning of the full-scale invasion, it's going back many years now, underestimated you know, to what extent you know, the West is able to uh, challenge you know, his uh, claim for you know, changing of geopolitical order. So he thinks that if only this war is to be allowed to drag on for a few more years, that the Western unity is going to crumble. Of course, the all eyes now on the next year's presidential elections in the United States. But not only that, but also within Europe, that the kind of you know, economic consequences of that war, including the high inflation, including oil prices and gas prices and the rest of it, is going to undermine and weaken the resolve of leaders in Europe and in the West overall in continuing to support Ukraine. And of course, we all know that if the West stops supporting Ukraine, and that is clear, that they will not be able to resist. But I think, you know, he is underestimating the extent to which there has been a very profound mental change in Europe. I think among the leaders of key European countries, there is now a realization that this is indeed a long war and Europe has to take steps to support Ukraine for the long run. And we're already saying or seeing, you know, statements from leaders, from German Chancellor, from Paris, from, from London and many other countries in Europe saying that, you know, we will support Ukraine as long as it takes. But what we are not seeing yet is, you know, actually substantial commitments in what it actually means in practical terms. Yes, Europe so far, in fact, has provided more military and financial assistance to Ukraine in the United States, Europe collectively. But Europe will need to shift more towards uh, developing the elements of the war economy, starting to uh, increase and finance, you know, a production of weapons that will be able to supply Ukraine for the long run, as well as to develop much more resilient economy. And, 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 and at the moment, you know, on both of those fronts, we have not seen progress. And the U.S., is it resilient, do you think? Notwithstanding at all, before we get to the issue of a possible Trump election, but... Will the U.S. be able to a, carry on providing uh, uh, to both a war in Ukraine and a war in Israel and to keep China at bay and to keep everybody on side and to actually get its own Congress in order and manage to pass some laws? Well, you know, I think, you know, when we look at what's happening nowadays in, in, in Washington, I think the word resilient would not be the first one which comes to mind. Uh, but um, uh, at the same time, I think there is a difference between, between Europe and the United States in the sense that, um, yes, the politics of the United States are incredibly dysfunctional and they do not appear resilient, but in terms of actual capabilities and economic and financial strength, if that politics were to be made to work, and I think it is a big if clearly, you know, it is clear that uh, United States can continue supplying Ukraine for a long run and Israel, and it can provide the foundation for, you know, the West continuing to 
played an absolutely critically important role in global order. And at the same time, of course, you know, taking on the challenge posed by China and others. Europe is in a different category, you know, perhaps it is less dysfunctional, although, of course, a lot of elections are, co are coming up in Europe as well. Uh, and it was able to hold on together, you know, which is a fantastic achievement. But what it doesn't have at the moment, it still doesn't have capability. And its economy so far has not been growing, you know, fast enough. I mean, we've seen a recession in Germany. In that sense, you know, it's a different kind of challenge to resilience. But in the United States, I think, yeah, we are, of course, extremely worried whether the Biden administration will be able to develop functional and, and effective relationship with Congress through the next few months, absolutely critically important months, that they have to continue supporting Israel and they have to play a much more activist role in the Middle East and kind of balance all that in terms of making sure that the war in, in the, between Israel and Hamas doesn't spill over in, in the region. And then they have to continue supporting Ukraine, absolutely have to continue supporting Ukraine. And, and therefore we've seen, you know, still from the Biden administration statements and, 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 and efforts to, to link, for example, in terms of uh, military and financial support, you know, military in particular, to Israel and to Ukraine together. But the key question mark is whether Congress will be able to, to function. And we have seen so far inability to, uh, you know, uh, where the politics, you know, from a small p, I would say, kind of a politics of, uh, of, of differences and, and, and sort of like a petty uh, small differences, but not so much the kind of thinking about strategy or about the national security or national interests of the United States. And, and, and that is very worrying. And then, of course, we will see, starting from spring next year, whole kind of show on the road of various, you know, court cases around Trump and all the kind of political instability and then, of course, elections itself. So, yeah, United States is perhaps in this world of uh, unpredictability is now one of the most unpredictable politically, you know, actor in the world. Yes, indeed. And we should say that this week uh, that has just ended, then um, the new speaker of um, finally, the new speaker of the House in the US, the Republican Johnson, um, did bring a bill to support Israel, but not Ukraine, and also tied it to a huge range of tax cuts um, internal to the US, which has nothing to do with the foreign policy. Um, last week, we were talking to Olga Oliker, who pointed out that whilst the president has the right of initiative on foreign policy in the US, it is Congress that has to fund it. Um, so we might be looking ahead at weeks and weeks now of squabbling over that bill, which the president has said that he will veto if it comes to him. Um, so that would, in any case, cause huge problems both on the Ukraine and the Israel side, wouldn't it? No, yes, absolutely. I think it will cause an enormous amount of problems, but I'm, I'm still cautiously, I mean, optimistic is the wrong word, but cautiously hopeful, that's probably the right word for it, um, that somehow we're going to see at the end of the day, you know, the real realization within Congress that, you know, United States is critically important for both of those conflicts. And then they have to uh, deliver because, you know, at the end of the day, if things, you know, go badly for Israel or if things go badly for Ukraine and in Ukraine, we are still seeing Russia trying to make uh, steps to 
launch its own uh, offensive and it really needs weapons and support, you know, that that is going to undermine not only U.S. standing in the world, but also, I think, the U.S. interest. So therefore, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, after this kind of political wrangling, there will be a formula found uh, in which both Ukraine and, and, and Israel assistance will be provided. But uh, yeah, timing here is also of the essence, of course. Let's take a slight step back. In retrospect, can we say that um, at least the wording of a pivot to Asia, coupled a lot later with the, the failure or the, the, the shambles of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, empowered the enemies of the US and gave a sense that they weren't interested anymore, either in um, Europe or the Middle East? And this is what possibly also led Putin to think that, you know, it would be a quick and easy um, raid in and out. Yes, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I think, uh, uh, as, I, as I mentioned before, you know, Putin's kind of rhetoric around, uh, you know, diminishing or, 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 or underestimating, you know, the Western ability to still remain, you know, united and, and, and capable of uh, asserting their interests, you know, have been consistent. And I think he's talked about decline of the West consistently. And I think he certainly watching what happened in Afghanistan in August is something that accelerated his thinking about invasion of Ukraine. But I think that the invasion of Ukraine is something which he had uh, planned for a long time. Uh, and it comes out of kind of, I guess, three different phases that the way I see it. You know, we had, of course, the first phase to remember, of course, that this conflict and this war started not in 2022, but started in 2014 when uh, with the annexation of Crimea. And I think there, you know, Putin was mostly motivated by domestic factors, you know, seeing his popularity declining um, and wanting to really, uh, you know, do something in kind of foreign policy or one can say kind of in terms of reasserting Russia's kind of imperial um, objectives and ambitions. And, and in fact, he succeeded because by staging this annexation in a way that it was done with a very little cost to Russia at that time, you know, it just delivered an extraordinary reversal of his political fortunes. You know, it went from him being at the lowest uh, ever in his time since 2000 uh, approval ratings to, you know, going from so 60s to more than 80s, you know, approval ratings. So he had succeeded in that. Then there was a second phase. The second phase started in 2022 20, when he clearly um, uh, thought that he will be able to stage this blitzkrieg and, uh, you know, be able to quickly take control over entire Ukraine, mostly motivated by then presenting it as a kind of fait accompli uh, for the West to be able to nego negotiate a new bargain. And you remember very well that he put forward all these preconditions, all these demands on the European security issues, um, such as, you know, NATO pulling out to its, you know, 1997 borders to, you know, U U.S. withdrawing its, its uh, forces and nuclear weapons from Europe, all of those demands that he harbored for a long time. And he was hoping that this blitzkrieg will deliver him this kind of strong arguments in, in negotiations with the West. But now I think we are in the first fa third phase. And of course, Ukrainians have demonstrated 
you know, proven him wrong, profoundly wrong, that they were able to effectively defend themselves and, and not allow, deny him the, the possibility of, of uh, victory in Ukraine. So he lost that second phase. But now we're in the third phase, where I think he is certainly, uh, from his perspective, you know, fighting a proxy war with the West. You know, he is no longer interested in territorial gains in Ukraine. Yes, you know, he has annexed it, but, you know, it is not what exercises him. What he really is uh, at the moment trying to achieve is in the proxy war with the West. He's, he wants to see the West kind of, uh, you know, crumble in terms of their support for Ukraine. And therefore, you know, him projecting Russia, which is, of course, you know, if you look at the objective terms, it is weaker economically, it is weaker from the point of view of its uh, global role and profile. But in this new world of disorder, this new world of um, kind of changing geopolitical picture, to kind of uh, use that uh, uh, fact that he thinks that he could win this proxy war with the West and force the West to back down from Ukraine, to then assert him, his role as a, one of the powers in this new multipolar world. And I think he's misjudging it because I don't think he's going to, to prevail. But uh, I think we need to bear that in, in mind when we think about can we actually stop this war quickly? Can we achieve something which oftentimes being called uh, peace for territory, whereby you know, giving him just a little bit more territory, maybe you know, for Ukrainians to then negotiate for peace. He is not interested in territory anymore. What he wants to achieve is, in his mind, kind of humiliation and crumbling of the West uh, in their kind of support for Ukraine and him emerging as a, um, as, as a victor. And I think, you know, Europe in particular, but the West as a whole, need to do everything possible not to allow that to happen, because that could actually lead to a much more profound long-term challenges for European security beyond what we're seeing in Ukraine today. Absolutely. I think you couldn't have put it better. Um, and can we therefore look and see that he's getting a lot of help in his ambitions in that the war over the past month, the war in uh, the Middle East has completely overtaken in public interest the war in Ukraine that's very much serving his interests. What about China and Iran? Are they backing him or are they just happy to watch him lead chaos and also benefit from it after? Well, I think we are in the situation now that not only China and Iran, I mean, clearly Iran is has emerged as a very important uh, practical backer of Putin, you know, one of the few countries that are supplying, you know, directly supplying military, very important military assistance to Russia's, you know, war effort in Ukraine. So it's basically Iran and North Korea. China has been so far much more cautious because clearly for China, the key uh, uh, sort of peer and key uh, calculation strategically is still about the United States. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's been very, very cautious not to cross the red lines. Of course, it's still su supporting, you know, Putin and, and it is in China's interest how they see it, how President Xi sees it. You know, Russia doesn't uh, uh, you know, lose this war, it doesn't disintegrate, that President Putin doesn't, is not overthrown, you know, internally. So he, they continue to support it, but only doing as much, not very much to directly enable, you know, Russia's war effort. While Iran has been absolutely instrumental, both in supplying its, uh, you know, the drones uh, at the beginning of the war when Russia didn't have that capabilities at the moment, starting to produce more drones itself, uh, as well as missiles and other 
you know, weapons. Uh, it's, you know, helping Russia to bypass sanctions on a number of fronts. Um, uh, and, and I think this relationship between Russia and Iran are playing quite interestingly in the Middle East crisis at the moment because clearly I think Putin's calculation, and again I wonder whether he is miscalculating again here, is that Israel simply cannot afford to have a bad relationship with Russia. And, and I think Prime Minister Netanyahu has so far been consistent in at least clearly not supporting Russia, but not doing anything in Ukraine, which will be seen as significantly undermining, you know, Russia's interest there. So it has not supplied very advanced weapons to Ukraine, has not provided as much intelligence as, you know, could have been provided, etc., etc. And I think, you know, this calculation in Moscow now is that because Russia and Iran are now increasingly closer, uh, that it will be in Israel's interest to sort of pull Russia away from Iran and therefore it cannot afford to completely burn its bridges and therefore Russia can afford to basically concentrate all its efforts at the moment in supporting Hamas or in all but name you know it's clearly giving Hamas a lot of legitimacy at a time when everyone in the world are no longer prepared to engage with Hamas on anything after this horrific you know terrorist attack that they staged in Israel but Russia is still engaging with Hamas with a hope that they will be able to win opportunistically more support in the Arab world and therefore more assistance to, to Russia, both in terms of selling its oil, both in terms of bringing investment in and, of course, also preventing the moon of Caucasus regions in Russia that continue to engage with the, with the Muslim world more broadly uh, from being destabilized from the outside. So in that sense, you know, that's the kind of calculation. But I think it's a miscalculation because I think that just like in Europe, there has been a very fundamental change in their perception of Russia, that there is no longer, you know, assumption that if you talk more to Russia, you know, more, make more concessions to Russia, that somehow Russia will be moderate and constrain itself. There is no longer that assumption. And I think we will see a repetition of that situation in the Middle East, where Israel has now seen what Russia's role is. And we're seeing how Russia is also now enabling anti-Semitism um, you know, and fermenting it, you know, in many parts of the world. And therefore, I think the relationship will suffer very fundamentally uh, going forward. And we perhaps can expect that Israel will be supporting Ukraine more um, overtly and more effectively going forward. But, you know, we're yet to see uh, how this conflict is going to evolve. And the final point to say that, you know, China-Russia relationship, of course, is extremely important. But I think we also have to understand that... Um, China has not been uh, particularly uh, happy about the fact that Putin has started the war, which he is not able to win, that uh, Russia is at the moment, uh, you know, undermining the basis for its long-term economic stability. Uh, but it's also being able to very effectively exploit this increasing dependency that Russia has on China to be able to secure more cheaper and longer term contracts on oil, to be able to you know, access uh, important Russian technologies in the military field, but also having access to, I guess, Russian you know, uranium and, and, and other things that China wants from Russia. Uh, so it is not a relationship which is, you know, one of a strategic alliance, but it is a relationship, of course, where, you know, China is the absolute winner of this increasing dependency of Russia on China. Well, it is a world of disorder, isn't it? It is, absolutely. But an interesting world to, to, to observe, I guess, for all of us who are, you know, trying to make sense of global politics at the moment.
absolutely. I couldn't find it a more interesting period than this, it has to be said. I would also add two small points. One of them is precisely, as you suggested, on the Israel-Russia relationship, there is rumor that President Zelensky will visit um, Israel next week. So we'll have to see if that happens. That would definitely not make people in Moscow very happy, that's for sure. But also what we haven't talked about, and I doubt we have very much time, but nonetheless, two words. There is one other major supporter of Hamas. Maybe his people don't, but President Erdogan of Turkey surprised everyone by massively coming out in favor of Hamas. One interpretation I've understood of that to be that he was angry that nobody came to him to mediate this, and therefore he came out on one side. But how do you see it? Yes, I agree here. I mean, I think uh, uh, you know President Erdogan at the moment is particularly keen to position Turkey as a kind of mediator-in-chief, so to speak, globally, and was uh, hoping uh, to achieve uh, that role uh, in the Middle East. And I think it would have been natural to think that Turkey should play that role, if only for himself, for President Erdogan, he would have not ruined relationships consistently with all the key parties to this mediation, you know, starting from Egypt at the beginning, you know, following, of course, you know, um, uh, the uh, arrival of, of, of President Sisi and, and the departure of Muslim Brotherhood. Then, of course, with Israel, where this relationship has never been repaired, even though it, at, at one point the Turkish-Israel relations were extremely close. Um, and um, uh, even with the Palestinians, I think, you know, he hasn't really appeared at the moment as a key and uh, stable partner. So in that sense, it's very difficult to see how Turkey can play a role. And uh, of course, at the moment, you know, with the rhetoric uh, uh, that coming out of, of Ankara, it is not making it more likely to be chosen as a mediator uh, by uh, trying to take sides. Because one of the key important uh, uh, features and, and, and requirements for a mediator is that mediator is staying in the shadow. It is enabling by hard work behind the scenes, you know, progress to be made. And I think, you know, what President Erdogan has in his mind, that he's going to be key person in the front of it, is not how mediation works. And I think the similar situation, of course, on Ukraine, where he did play a very, very effective and important role, for example, in supporting the grain deal. And here, Turkey did play behind the scenes and enabled and, uh, to, uh, some of those talks to take place. But again, going forward, the only way Turkey can play that role, if it is going to be able to play effective role on both sides, not to actually see that as a kind of key and debtor of its foreign policy. Because mediation is a hard work and sometimes not a very grateful one because those intractable conflicts, you know, are very hard to solve. They are indeed. And as ever, we come back to Europe and which would appear to be probably under most circumstances, it would have been logical that it would have been a logical mediator in the region. But as ever, it's not capable. If you think that it's main achievement is speaking in one voice, then you're not really going to be a very, very high-flying player. Oksana, thank you so very, very much for absolutely fascinating tour de table conversation. And Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm really great to talk to you. And uh, hopefully next week will bring us a little bit more reasons for optimism. Absolutely. And that's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much, Oksana. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. 
we're on all media as wise brussels so reach out on twitter facebook linkedin instagram and even tiktok learn more about wise brussels on our website wise-brussels.org i'm ilana Beitel with my friend and producer florence ferrando and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation <music>